This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. And we're in. We're in. Welcome to Mystery Team Inc. I'm Maggie. And I'm Kayla. And, and I, I have, have a... <laughs> <laughs> I have a little bone to pick with somebody on the internet, which is that, and I think this is a universal experience. Every time <laughs> I go on Venmo... I get traumatized because I inevitably see like an ex or like a person who is no longer in my life. <laughs> and then I get sad. Yeah. Venmo. If you're listening, th- this is sad. It's unacceptable. Why? It's like people I've blocked on every platform for some reason are just like always popping up on my Venmo feed. It's horrible. And I'm like, I don't want to see you paying someone for sushi. No, I know. Uh, this started because right before we started recording, I Venmoed Maggie for Starbucks. And then it was like, did you want to know that your ex Venmoed someone else for lowercase d dinner? <laughs> no. Oh, that's good. Well, I at least didn't. you know that's like a roommate. Because if it wasn't like, if it if it was lowercase d dinner, that's just like, that's just a memo for the sake of a memo. There's nothing cute about it. It wasn't like clinky glasses, yeah, that's taco true. emoji, yeah. you know? <laughs> And the name was a name that's, like, mostly masculine but can be (laughs) feminine. But I don't think that he, like, hangs out with, like, exciting people who are, like, girls named Kyle, you know? (laughs) I don't think that's... (laughs) But it... But but the, the... The it grinds my gears and the complaint stands that yeah. Venmo needs to stop it. Is there a way to t- change like the your feed? Your feed so that there's no feed? I don't know. I mean, I've made my thing private so no one can see any of my transactions, but I definitely don't know about the feed situation. I've never not gone on Venmo and been, been traumatized. Sad. Me too, dude. Truly. It happens to me all the time. There's no I don't think there's a way. Unless I immediately go to my page without looking, but like, I don't I don't know. Anyway, welcome to Mystery Teaming. <laughs> the podcast where we solve mysteries and complain about apps. <laughs> I'm furious. All right. Do you have a mystery for me today? I do have a mystery for you today. Can you tell me the genre? Disappearance. Yes. Okay. This is the mysterious disappearance of Ambrose Small. I don't know this one. Ambrose Small was born in 1866 in Newmarket, Ontario. We've got a Canadian mystery. Is this our first? No, this is not our first. Is it? Who was our... We had another... Was the gold miner from the No, Caribbean? he just went to Canada. Oh, but that doesn't make it Canadian. No. The mystery didn't take place in Canada. I think in order for it to be a Canadian mystery, it has to happen in Canada. Mm. Then I think this might Otherwise, be our first one. Otherwise, it's taxable in the U.S. <laughs> You do get your incentives if you do the mystery in Canada. (laughs) So they're moving all the mysteries from L.A. and Atlanta to Canada. Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) 
1880, Ambrose Small's family had moved to Toronto, just like all of the mysteries. <laughs> His father, Daniel, had gotten a job as the manager of the Grand Hotel. Next door to the Grand Hotel was the Grand Opera House. In 1884, at the age of 18, Ambrose was able to get a job at the Grand Opera House as an usher. Simultaneously with having his usher job at the Grand Opera House, he was involved in an illegal horse race betting operation. Who among us isn't? Well, I'm not going to admit if I am. (laughs) He worked his way up to the role of assistant treasurer of the Opera House until 1899, when he had a falling out with the Grand Opera House's manager, Oliver B. Shepard. This culminated in Ambrose leaving the Grand Opera House and allegedly vowing to one day get revenge on Oliver B. Shepard by becoming the owner of the Grand Opera House. By becoming the Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Soon afterward, Ambrose took up a new position at the Toronto Opera House purely out of spite. We love a spiteful king. I really love that this is all... Because he, like, didn't get to be manager at a theater anymore. Yes. It's very Lower East Side Black Box New York theater. Yes, it is. It's very theater to have, like, a spite job. (laughs) Well, I guess I'll just do student theater because I didn't get into the department show. Exactly. Kayla said in college. (laughs) So within a few years, Ambrose rose through the ranks and became the manager of the Toronto Opera House. It wasn't long before Ambrose had saved enough money to buy the mortgage for the Grand Opera House and fire Oliver B. Shepard, as promised. How did he do that so fast? By being greedy. (laughs) We're going to get into it in a minute. good. Making him, as promised, the owner of the Grand Opera House and getting his revenge on Oliver B. Shepard. In the ensuing years, Ambrose became known as the face of theater in Toronto, mostly due to his quote-unquote shrewd business acumen, which as you probably know, actually means cheating his associates out of good deals, (laughs) as all shrewd businessmen do. (laughs) He reportedly would include joker clauses in his contracts. A joker clause is a clause placed in a document, such as a contract or piece of legislation, not itself appearing significant, but in a subtle way substantially changing the effect of the document. Can we get an example? Can we use the word in a sentence? I thought I bought his house, but there was a joker clause that said he still owns the land. Oh. Yeah. This is a quote from the Canadian Encyclopedia. Yes. Which has A through A. (laughs) (laughs) And then A through Z. Yeah. It's just two installments. It's two, it's two, two volumes. Yeah, two. <laughs> Toronto journalist Hector Charlesworth, who knew Small personally, commented, If I heard once, I heard a score of times the ominous words, somebody will get Ambie someday. Ambie. Mm-hmm. That's cute. I wish that he, he was, hadn't used it in a sentence about him getting got. I know. So, yeah, he apparently was like just such an asshole. Mm. Um, I accept. So a- every source I read said that he was an asshole and he just like cheated everyone out of their money all the time. But one, there was one like testimonial from the guy who ran the concession stand at the Grand Opera House who said he was his best friend and he always <gasps> let him eat whatever he wanted <laughs> from the concession stand. Maybe he's doing like a Homer Simpson thing where he's like sitting in the like tech booth mm-hmm. the lighting booth of the theater and he just has the concession stand guy it's photos like do it for him he's like i'm doing it for him <laughs> he 
He's cheating these people out of their money so that he can afford to let the concessions guy eat all the snacks he wants. To give him a better life. Aww. EMB. EMB. In 1902, Ambrose Small married Teresa Corman, which was his stepmother's younger sister. Yuck. She was the daughter, although his stepmother had, like, I think only recently become his stepmother. I just feel like it's the vibe. It's cute, yeah. Yeah. But this is also 1902, so it was just a marriage of convenience. Like, it was arranged, essentially, for oh. money. Um, oh, I see. She was the daughter of a wealthy beer baron, so... Between the two of them, they made, like, a very powerful, wealthy marriage. Ambrose and Teresa had little in common. Um, Teresa was a devout Roman Catholic who spent most of her time patronizing the arts and performing charitable works, while Ambrose was a gambler and a womanizer. (laughs) Mm. He had a secret room in the Grand, which he used for paying off gambling debts and trysts with chorus girls. Here's the thing. If you're going to do it, I'd rather you get I'd a room. I'd rather you do it in the opera house. In a secret room in the <laughs> opera house. That's true. It's kind of cool to have a secret room for your gambling debts. And your trysts. Teresa was aware of the room. She also once found a bundle of love letters written to him by his mistress. He apparently at one point had a mistress in Germany who wrote him a letter saying to stop sleeping around so much. Wow. Ambrose and Teresa slept in separate bedrooms in their mansion. I think they really like liked each other, but... They just, this is what it was. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she got to, like, go volunteer at the orphanage, and he went to have his trysts, and, like, it seems like she was aware that this is, like, how he was. In the subsequent years, Ambrose came to own 25 theaters, but by 1919, as we know from our series on William Desmond Taylor, motion pictures were starting to take off, and thus live theater was in decline. <sighs> Small saw the writing on the wall and struck a deal with TransCanada to sell all of his theaters for $1.7 million Canadian, which, if my calculations are correct, would be worth around $22 million U.S. today. That's so... How many theaters did he own? 25. I don't know. That feels like not that much money. At the time, it was like the biggest deal anyone had ever done essentially like it was of considered any, pretty substantial of any genre of deal <laughs> no i don't think or so but like i think deal. in theater in canada wow <laughs> big fish small pond <laughs> he received a check for the first million upon signing the contract and would receive the other seven hundred thousand dollars in installments also don't forget that canadian is worth slightly less than u.s dollars not in my heart. And it was at the time. <laughs> Not in my heart. When you were a kid and you bought a book, were you, did you ever look at it and be like, oh, thank God I don't live in Canada. This would be like $17 instead yeah. of like $14. Yeah. Yeah. On December 2nd, 1919, Ambrose Small, Teresa, and their attorney, E.W.M. Flock, how do I get a name like that, met TransCanada Theater Representative W.J. Shaughnessy in the legal office of Alan Aylesworth. If a train leaves Ontario going... <laughs> <laughs> the contract was signed, and the TransCanada representative gave Ambrose Small a certified check for one million (laughs) dollars. Ambrose gave the check to Teresa and told her to take it to their bank. Teresa made the deposit in the Dominion Bank at 11.45 a.m. Ambrose, Teresa, and their attorney met for lunch at the King Edward Hotel. Then Ambrose and Teresa went up to the St. Vincent de Paul Orphanage, where Teresa made a donation. 
At that point, they split up, and Ambrose reportedly told Teresa he'd be home by 6 o'clock. That afternoon, Teresa told her sister that she and Ambrose were planning to travel the world. Ambrose ordered a Cadillac, jewelry, and a fur coat for Teresa. Then he went and met the attorney, EWM Flock, at his office, Ambrose's office, at the Grand Theater to discuss a few business matters. He invited Flock to join him and Teresa for dinner, but Flock had to catch a train to London, Ontario. Flock left Small's office at 5.30 p.m. on December 2nd. Ambrose Small was never seen again. (sighs) Because Ambrose disappeared so often for business dealings and trysts with mistresses... Is it a disappearance? (laughs) (laughs) Tristresses. Was that a mistake or was that unbelievable work? No, it was unbelievable work. Unbelievable work. I read Trist with Mistresses and then in my head I went Tristresses <laughs> and then it's, I said it out loud. I love that. And that's, folks, how you make a joke. <laughs> you think of it in your head and then you say it out loud. <laughs> what were you going to ask me before I was too smart for my own good? <laughs> Is it a disappearance if you're doing business? Or is it just business trip? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. yeah mm, from his wife's perspective, he was just like, he would just be gone. Oh. And then he'd come back and be like, I did a business. And she'd be like, okay. <laughs> it's like me. <laughs> Leaving my house in the morning. Yeah. Because Ambrose disappeared so often for business dealings and tristresses, <sighs> Ambrose was not reported missing until two weeks later because his wife and friends didn't even suspect that anything was wrong. Two weeks is a long time. He would sometimes, I guess, just go to Germany and have this mistress affair. So, like, For who how knows? Long? Well, I guess travel time was really long. Yeah. It takes a week round trip. Right. Then you only get a week with your tristress. <laughs> it's barely enough time to reconnect. <laughs> when Teresa and attorney EWM Flock came to the police two weeks later to report the disappearance, Teresa said, I believe my Ambi is in the hands of a designing woman somewhere and will come back. She believed that he was off having a tryst and was like, I, I believe he'll come back. Like, I'm sure he's just with some woman who has, like, tricked him with her ways. Before Ambrose's disappearance was made public, a man named George Susi contacted the police to tell them that he had seen a man fitting Ambrose Small's description being forced into a car on December 2nd, 1919. Hmm. A caretaker named Albert Elson reported that he'd seen a group of men burying something that he thought may have been a body in a ravine near Ambrose Small's house. As I said, these reports were made before Ambrose's disappearance was made public. When did he see them burying the thing? I'm actually not sure. Okay, then strike the question from the record, please. (laughs) Sustained. (laughs) When Ambrose's disappearance was made public, Teresa offered a $500 reward for information about Ambrose's whereabouts. Two newsboys, Nat and Louis Savine, claimed that they had seen Small walking east on Adelaide Street sometime after 5.30. Fred Lamb, owner of a hotel next to the Grand, said Small had dropped into his hotel that night and stayed until 7. With few leads to go on, Teresa upped the ante to a $50,000 reward for information about Ambrose's disappearance and whereabouts if he was found alive, and $15,000 if he was found dead. Hold on. Who Whose hotel room was he in? It wasn't a hotel room. It was the owner of the hotel next to the Grand oh, okay. Theater uh, or Grand Opera House said that Ambrose had dropped into his hotel and stayed until 7. Okay. Like probably at the bar, I guess. 
Leads started flooding in from everywhere. Ambrose Small's sisters, who lived with a tabloid journalist, started leaking theories to the tabloid press that Teresa had something to do with the disappearance. Mm. The case blew up in the press, and they published rumors that Ambrose had been murdered and his body had been thrown into the furnace in the basement of the Grand Opera House. Such drama. This is like some, I feel like it's like H.H. Holmes uh, drama. It's very Phantom of the Opera, (laughs) H.H. Holmes Yes. Drama. Yes. The main investigator in the Ambrose Small case was a Toronto detective named Austin Mitchell. Whoa. Whoa. Sorry. There's a detective in 19... What? 19. Named Austin Mitchell? Yes. Was he a frat boy at he was the a University time traveler. of Florida? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> he time traveled. Austin Mitchell is... A child who was born in 1993 mm-hmm. and was in a frat. Yes. Not a detective from 1919. Get you a man who can do both. <laughs> she contains multitudes. <laughs> Austin Mitchell was known as the great investigator. He came back in time and was like, hey, bro. I don't know. I'm like a great investigator. I'm going to solve this mystery. <laughs> he was like Googling it. <laughs> Does he still have... Internet access across time? That's a good question. I feel like if you um, set up like um, one of those like router expanders in the wormhole, mm-hmm. then maybe. Yeah. He was known as the great mouse detective because he solved so many cases and was known for his quote unquote unconventional methods. He only solved them because he already knew what the solution was. For, because he traveled through time. Yes. Yes. Is his unconventional method knowing already? Okay, drink because I'm going to pitch a show. (laughs) It's somebody who travels back in time to solve mysteries because they live in the future. Yes. Okay, great. I love this. Me too. And they become like Sherlock Holmes, like ubiquitous throughout history for solving mysteries. Can they travel back to the future (laughs) at will? I don't know. We're going to have to work in some complications to make the show work. Yeah. Like, is the th- is he, like, going back in time to solve the mystery and then coming back to modern day, like, for the weekends? Probably. I feel like the trick has to be we have to set it up somehow so that he can't return until he's actually solved the mystery. Oh. Oh, I like that. Is he, like, an unwilling government agent? Great. Hmm. Is this his punishment? Oh, good idea. time crimes. Yes, perfect. Because he solved so many cases and was known for his unconventional methods, which actually means psychics. (laughs) Psychics or other time travelers. Who's to say? Oh, my God. Okay. So that's just psych. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you're about to pitch is just psych. Yeah, it's just psych, but time travel is included. (laughs) Damn it. When Sir Arthur Conan Doyle happened to be visiting New York, a Toronto reporter presented him with a brief of the small case. And this is a quote, which Doyle evidently accepted politely and then forgot. (laughs) And they subsequently ran the headline, Sherlock Holmes takes case under wing. Oh, no. Oh, sorry. Sherlock Holmes takes small case under wing. Oh, he didn't, though. Other amazing headlines from the time include, Small's astral body seen by Toronto man? (laughs) Is Small's body buried beneath the Rosedale dump? And one that just says, Claims spirit told her A.J. Small was poisoned. I love psychics. 
The police then intercepted a message sent to a New York shopkeeper stating, Hold small until tomorrow morning. Don't let him go under any circumstances. Whoa. Say that again. The police intercepted a message sent to a New York shopkeeper stating, Hold small until tomorrow morning. Don't let him go under any circumstances. It was signed S.H. So investigator Austin Mitchell rushed off to New York, but after five days, he turned up no evidence. A New York lawyer who had defended Frank and Jesse James received a series of letters from a writer signing B.B. Friend, stating that Small was being held by gangsters and offering to carry on negotiations. But the letters stopped coming before anything could be accomplished. That's so weird. I'm trying to figure out, like, who would benefit from that. Qui bono. It's super weird because all this obviously came out after this the disappearance was made public and it was all over the tabloids. And so it's, like, hard to know if any of it is real or if it's just, like, Yeah, but hoaxers. the question is, like, what do you get out of hoaxing? It's just fun for them? I guess so. There wasn't a lot to do in 1919. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> I mean, what's weird is, like, people have done this all the time throughout history. It's like... I guess I don't understand the motive in any decade. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe they just wanted to, like, get in the newspaper. Yeah. By this time, the case had become incredibly famous. When none of the psychics produced any concrete results, and with public pressure on to solve the case, a new inspector named Edward L. Hammond was assigned to the case. He was a very conventional, by-the-book investigator. Apparently... He and Austin Mitchell clashed over artistic differences, eventually leading Hammond <laughs> to accuse Mitchell of botching the case. I would watch this show. This is act two of the pilot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where he ends up having to be teamed with yeah. like a present day for the time travel <laughs> detective. But then they become a pair and then they go through different periods of time together. Yeah. And the old-timey detective is just like, hmm, gross. <laughs> but he follows his instincts, and Austin Mitchell relies too much on, like, technology. Oh, that's And fair. advanced techniques. Mm -hmm. Ambrose didn't have any kind of suitcase with him when he disappeared. He had very little cash on him. Most people feel that it didn't make sense that he would have left his life voluntarily the day after cashing a million-dollar check. Even if he wanted to just run away and start a new life, a la William Desmond Taylor, most of his friends say that he was way too greedy to leave all the money behind. So that would leave us with one main possibility. Ambrose Small met with foul play. <gasps> the suspects. The primary suspect in the case was John Doughty. John Doughty was Ambrose Small's personal secretary, and somewhere I read he was the Grand Opera Theater treasurer. And he was not shy about talking shit about Ambrose. <laughs> he had worked for him for a long time. He got paid a tiny salary. <gasps> he felt that he had been instrumental in Ambrose's success. And he'd always resented Ambrose's refusal to pay him adequately. And I bet he covered a lot of shit up for him, too. I'm sure. When police interviewed friends of John Dowdy's, they revealed that he had even talked once or twice about murdering or kidnapping Ambrose. We've all done it. Who among us? <laughs> John Doughty disappeared the day after Ambrose did. <gasps> then police discovered $100,000 worth of bonds was missing from Ambrose Small's safety deposit box at the Dominion Bank. Doughty had been the last person to open this box, 
on the morning of December 2nd. Okay, I'm confused as to why this is unsolved. A year later, John Dowdy was found living in Oregon and working at a paper mill under the name Charles B. Cooper. C.B. Cooper. <laughs> when a coworker. Charles B. Cooper. <laughs> when a coworker recognized him from a wanted poster and turned him in. Kids never give up on your wanted posters. <laughs> Once in custody, he immediately admitted to stealing the bonds. He led police to the bonds, which were stuck between the walls of the attic in his sister's home. Dowdy's story went like this. He had been handling the bonds on official business for Ambrose. But when Ambrose disappeared, John had been left holding the bonds. So he gave them to his sister to hold on to just before he caught the train to Montreal, having her keep them in a safety deposit box until further notice. When news broke of Ambrose Small's disappearance, John feared he'd be blamed for the theft and the disappearance. So he hid the bonds and went on the lam. Okay, it feels like in most episodes of like late 90s sitcoms where you're like all 20 minutes of this could have been avoided if A, someone had a cell phone yeah. or B, someone had just told the truth from the outset. Right. But then Chandler and Monica would never have ended up together. That's exactly right. It's kind of like, but like imagine, okay, there's no cell phones and whatever. And like your boss is like, hey, pull out these bonds tomorrow or whatever so you do and then he just you never hear from him again so you're like I guess put these you put them in like a safety deposit box until you hear back from him and then like two weeks later you find you hear that he like disappeared and everyone's like his body's been burned in a furnace and you're like oh no like aren't you a little bit scared that you've just been framed for a murder well that's why you go immediately and you say my boss told me to yeah totally it's just like we did with the do, do you do it if you're greedy and you hate your boss huh yeah, I would still do it. Okay. Because I care more about being framed for murder than yeah. I do about getting back to my boss. Right. He already been got back at. He disappeared. Right. At his trial, the prosecution drew out the fact that Dowdy had worked for the millionaire for $45 a week. Do we know what that is in today money? Is it $15 an hour? Probably. With a 42 cent raise every yes, year? Yes, probably. And that he had practically made a lifetime hobby of beefing about it. <laughs> Several employees of the Grand, including Fred DeVille, who was in charge of printing programs, and Ernest Reed, who was in charge of a chocolate vending machine, said that Dowdy had come to them with kidnapping plans. <gasps> and then I wrote, lol. <laughs> <laughs> if you have the fucking chocolate guy ratting on you, you fucked up. You yeah. know what I mean? You have to choose who you, like, shit talk your boss to. Yeah, it's true. It's not the chocolate vending machine no. guy for sure. No. I wonder if that was the concessions guy who was his best friend. I just had that thought. And they were just described differently in two different sources. Was the concession stand just a chocolate vending machine then? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it was. But I think the concessions guy might have also been in charge of the vending machine. Don't Probably. You? Or he was in charge of the guy who was in charge of the vending machine. Sure. The assistant to the regional manager. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At trial, Dowdy openly confessed to hating Small, to feeling little remorse that he was gone, and even to stealing the $100,000 bonds, but he claimed innocence in anything connected to Small's actual disappearance. Investigators could find no evidence that he was lying. In fact, his whereabouts were accounted for from the time Ambrose was last seen at 5.30 until 9 p.m. when he caught the train to Montreal. I buy it. He was found guilty. Well, and the other thing is he never cashed the bonds. He just, like, hid them. Yeah. He was found guilty of the theft of the bonds and sentenced to six years in prison. He was never charged with murder or kidnapping. 
Enter Ambrose's sisters, Gertrude and Florence. They believed from the jump that Teresa had conspired to have Ambrose killed, probably because she stood to inherit most of his estate, leaving little to the sisters. But doesn't she have access to the estate anyway? Like, she has access to the money, and she came from money, right? Teresa? Yeah. Yeah, but Ambrose's will left it all to her. Yeah, but can, didn't she have access to it anyway? Like, what couldn't she spend their money without him dying? Yeah, totally. No, I'm saying they are mad at her because she was a, she was inheriting the estate. Oh, and that's why they spread the rumor. Yes, I see. Um, because the sis- Ambrose had been supporting the sisters, mm-hmm. and so now that he was gone, I think they thought she was going to cut them off. Did they talk to her about it? Or are we going to get 22 minutes plus commercials (laughs) about this misunderstanding? When police found no evidence of Teresa's involvement, the sisters hired their own private detective. Name, please? (laughs) I don't know. Damn it. I know. I was wishing they could be a character, too. (laughs) They also accused the police of a cover-up. After which, the police went on to dig up the basement of the small mansion and the basement of the Grand Opera House as well as the ravine where the witnesses saw someone burying a body. They found nothing. Just about every body found for the next several years was claimed to be Ambrose Small, and each one was proven not to be. People also came forward claiming to be Ambrose Small, but of course none of them were. Reports and sightings of Ambrose Small continued to come in for years after his disappearance. For example, a famous magician signed a sworn affidavit that he'd seen Ambrose Small playing poker in Mexico. Nope. (laughs) No. (laughs) Police even received a phone call from a man claiming to be Ambrose Small, who turned out to be an escaped psychiatric patient. Ah, better than a magician. Correct. Perhaps the only interesting possible sighting is that of the 1921 Des Moines man. Hmm. According to Wikipedia and no one else, several papers, (laughs) among them the New York Herald, reported that in 1921, a man turned up in Iowa who looked like Ambrose Small. A local detective said that the man was half-crazed and physically disabled. A local detective named John J. Brothy said that the mysterious man had been dropped off by an unidentified motorist who claimed that he'd accidentally struck Small with his car badly wounding him and saying to the detective that he hoped he'd receive the best medical care available. We're going to come back to that. Okay. Brothy claimed that the mysterious man had a gunshot wound in his neck, a serious concussion, and both his legs had been severed from the knee down. And when they picked him up, he was like, when first I appear, (laughs) I seem deleterious. He further stated that the man didn't speak for three weeks before finally breaking his silence, stating, I am John Dowdy. I came here from Omaha. That is all I remember. Hmm. At the time, John Dowdy was serving his sentence in Canada. Brothy claimed... so weird. Brothy claimed that he showed a photo of Ambrose Small to the man, and he said, yes, that is me. Brothy stated the man's facial characteristics were identical to Ambrose Small's. However, the man weighed a significant amount more than Small had at his disappearance. Okay. Further reports state that the man was taken into custody by the private investigators. However, the Des Moines police were quoted as being unaware of any of these actions and said they had not been contacted by the investigators. Two things. This is the last sentence. Okay. And that's all we know about that because the only place I could find that information was Wikipedia. And when I tried to pull up the newspaper from the archives, I couldn't find it. Ugh. That's a compelling... It's very compelling. Especially because, I mean, like, I think what that implies is that 
maybe John Dowdy had something to do with the disappearance. Yeah. He maybe, I mean, here's the thing. In my brain, I'm like putting all the stories together, but it's like maybe he like passed them off to like gangsters or whoever and like they they all had a plan to like hold him for ransom or whatever. The letters went unheeded or like whatever it is, like the tips came in and because they got like 50,000 tips or whatever, it's like no one ever, like the plan fell apart for whatever reason. At some point, they injured him, shot him, whatever, and then essentially just dumped him because the plan didn't work. Yeah, I'm wondering like what led him to, like who told him his name was John Dowdy and how did they get him to believe it? I mean, part of me feels like maybe he was just like tortured so much and like so traumatized that that was like the only name he remembered or something, you know? I will say I looked him up and he is a very distinct looking man. Yeah, he is. He was also very small. He weighed like between 100 and 150 pounds. Very, very distinct looking. I I feel like it would be a hard mistake to make. I agree. And I feel like it's very compelling. And but also because this was just like then in Iowa and it's like 1921. Clearly, it just never like made its way. I mean, but it was in the papers, I guess. That's so weird. If that's true, there are so many things that had to happen between him getting up. Well, he was gone for two years. I just that was him. There has to be like such a fascinating story of how he went from that to like being, I don't know, 10 pounds heavier and thinking he's John Dowdy. Yeah. In Iowa. And having a gunshot wound in his neck. So bananas. The thing I'd like to come back to, though, is that like this man was like, hi, I did a hit and run. I hope he gets (laughs) care. Bye. (laughs) Take care of him. Right. Like, can you do that? There's a lot of things. I have a lot of questions also. Like, how do you like this was a private detective. Like, doesn't it seem weird to, like, drop a physically disabled man with a gunshot wound in his neck off at, like, someone's... As opposed to a hospital? Yeah. Or even, like, the actual police. Did he know the detective? I don't know. No, Mm. the man said he was an unidentified motorist. Yeah, that's weird. You know what this is giving me vibes of is um, the hotel room whatever mystery. 1046? Yes. Yeah. My mystery that I can't remember. Yeah. (laughs) Room 1046. Yeah. Just like so many missing pieces yes. and weird. I love that. Yeah. That one. Creepy. I wish you could find that somewhere else. I tried to find the news article because I know it came from the New York Herald. And I could not find it. Well, then let's call Harold. <laughs> Hi, I'd like to speak to Harold, please, about a newspaper. <laughs> In 1924, Small was officially declared dead. Teresa Small was awarded $800,000 of the estate and an allowance of $30,000. Gertrude and Florence did not like that and immediately had the ruling overturned. They took Teresa to trial in what was supposed to be a civil trial, but it ultimately turned into a grilling of Teresa in regards to her husband's death. This is a quote. Mrs. Small, a clever, traveled and well-educated woman who could read eight languages, was grilled and cross-examined hour upon hour without losing her poise. She entered for probate a will dated September 6, 1903, which read, I devise and bequeath all my real and personal property whatsoever and wheresoever to my wife, Teresa Small, and I appoint her my sole administratrix and executrix. Administratrix? And executrix. Ooh. That obviously proved the estate was entirely hers. I'd also like to point out that it was from 1903 and not at all from any time near his death. I had that thought. 
On April 29th, a settlement was reached where Teresa was ordered to pay Gertrude and Florence the interest on $100,000, which, quote, Mrs. Small said she would have given them in the first place with the principal thrown in. <laughs> I'm telling you, they should have talked to her. I know. It's true. The justice's final words were, the plaintiff, Mrs. Small, leaves this court without any stain whatever upon her character. Yeah, if anything, now she looks even better. Yeah. Teresa Small died at noon on October 14th, 1935, leaving a will that took care of a long list of beneficiaries and left what remained of her estate to the Roman Catholic Church. I bet the sisters were pissed. pissed. Also, I'm not into Catholicism, but like, I like that she just left it all to charity, basically. Yeah. In 1936, the case was reinvestigated by the Ontario police at the behest of the new attorney general. Hammond's conclusion, that's the by the book guy who was assigned to the case, Mm -hmm. was that Ambrose Small was murdered in a plot constructed by his wife, Teresa Small. Oh, come on. That was obviously the complete opposite of the Ontario government's public position that Teresa had nothing to do with it. But Wikipedia also points out that the Ontario government believed that Mrs. Small, and hence also her large monetary bequest to the Catholic Church, was beyond reproach. So someone feels like the government has motive to not blame Teresa, because if she had anything to do with it, then her large monetary donation (laughs) might be under scrutiny and then might get, like, taken back. That's true, but she was deemed... It feels, like, coincidental. It doesn't feel like that's... yeah. Enough motive for a cover-up. Because also, she didn't donate that money until she died. That's that's what I was going to say. Hammond also implied that Austin Mitchell suppressed evidence that would have led to Teresa being named as a suspect. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. But then my brain goes like, okay, but was Hammond like the cop in the um, Julia case where he just suppressed all that evidence? Yeah. That that William didn't kill her? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's like it could go either way. Do we know what the evidence is? Mm -mm. In June, Teresa's remaining possessions were auctioned off. Florence, Ambrose's sister, presented a letter of confession from someone known only as Reuter, claiming to have been the murderer. The letter read, Poor Ambrose was killed on December 2nd, 1919, and I know that part of his body, the trunk, was buried in the Rosedale Ravine dump, and other parts of the body were burned in the Grand Opera House furnace. You will be surprised, my dear Florence and Gertrude, to learn that I am more responsible for your brother's death. God forgive me, Reuter. How do you spell Reuter? R-E-U-T-E-R. Oh, okay. The letter was basically thrown out and deemed a fake, and the rest of Teresa's possessions were auctioned off. In October 1940, Gertrude Small drowned on her wedding night, along with her (gasps) new husband, in an accident at Wasaga Beach. Florence believed that she was murdered, but the coroner declared it a death by accidental drowning. What the fuck? The Grand Opera House was torn down in 1927. Today, it has been replaced by a skyscraper. The only sign that it was ever there is a street sign, indicating a small lane that runs adjacent to the building called Grand Opera Lane. And that is the mysterious disappearance of Ambrose Small. Dang! (laughs) (laughs) So many questions! I have so many. I cannot get over that Des Moines man. I can't either. I do think it's interesting that the police were accused of a cover-up and then they went and dug up the basement and the dump and the, like, all those places and they found nothing. But it seems weird, like, they must have had some reason to believe that 
Or was it, do you think it was just like the sisters were like, we heard he's in the dump. We heard he's in the opera house furnace. There was a cover up. And then the police were like, okay, if if you think there was a cover up, like we'll go dig it up. And there's nothing there. Or did they not find nothing? Yeah. And suppress it. I don't know why they would do that. I don't either. I'm not usually one to not suspect the police, (laughs) but it doesn't seem like they would have anything to gain from hiding no, Anything. there was a lot of pressure on them to solve it. Yeah. Also, this is Canadian police, so I guess I should not treat them with the same like <laughs> ire that I treat. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Damn. God, I want to know more about the Des Moines man. I know. I wish I could find anything more about him. I mean, I literally like searched everywhere specifically for information about that man, and I could find nothing else. And there's no source listed on Wikipedia? On Wikipedia, there's a link to the Herald, but it goes to nothing. That page doesn't exist anymore. You got too close. (laughs) I got too close to the truth. This is the thing about the Des Moines man. Assuming that it's real and not made up for the newspaper. Because there's always that possibility. Yeah. It seems insane to me that this man would be dropped off and then say without prompting, I'm John Doughty. Unless he actually was like connected to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, a man who looks almost identical to Ambrose. Mm -hmm saying the one name mm-hmm. that's connected to the case. Mm-hmm. Unless it's like he read about it in the papers, but it just seems too, no, I don't know. It's too, it's too coincidental. Yeah. But. but then my question is like, what ever happened to that guy? Because like the detectives say like that they contacted the police and the police said they were never contacted. I mean, it even says in the thing, like he didn't speak for three weeks. And I'm like, okay, well, where was he that whole time? Like, did the detective just like have him at his house? Like, you know, like what? Yeah. The unidentified motorist asked very nicely <laughs> that he get good medical care. I mean, like I had a gunshot wound in his neck and like had, had his legs cut off. Yeah, that's true. Where was he? <sighs> that's so weird. Very weird. It seems like it's too weird to be made up for a newspaper almost. I agree. Just like I think it's too weird that Dorothy came up with like older brother, the alien. Yeah. And the force. <laughs> it's too weird that Dorothy invented Star Wars. I know. Oh, that's a good disappearance. He gone. He go- <laughs> Apparently, this story is like a big story in um, Canada. It's like a very well-known mystery. Well, it's the only Canadian mystery. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot. It's the <laughs> only Canadian mystery. Although Blair Adams. He just went to Canada, I thought. It doesn't count if they just went there, Kayla. <laughs> yeah, because didn't he die in Tennessee? Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Damn my encyclopedic knowledge <laughs> of murders. <laughs> I couldn't remember the name of room 1046, but I remember that Blair Adams died in Tennessee. So weird. Nona Dirksmeyer was a... <laughs> beauty queen. No, yeah. she wasn't a beauty she queen. She was. She was. Yeah. <gasps> Damn my encyclopedic knowledge. <laughs> Great mystery, cuz. Thanks. I loved that. I'm furious. Any questions? <laughs> I think I've asked all of my questions. So many questions. My question is, what happened to Ambrose Small? I'd like to know myself. Ugh. We have a big theater mystery. <gasps> we love it. In case you're wondering, mystery. they did search the room for clues and they found none. The Tristris room. But I bet they found some interesting stuff. I bet. The other thing is, he... 
was, I mean, we know he was involved in like illegal horse betting and all that stuff. And all those people said like, somebody's going to get him someday. And I'm like 100% convinced that it was like a combination of horses. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 100% convinced it was a combination of horses (laughs) that kidnapped Ambrose Small. I, here's the thing. I don't know if this is if it's the same now as it was then, but it's like usually like the mob that runs those things. So don't you think that like he must have like pissed somebody off? Yeah, I mean, horses are famously deadly. Don't you think he must have pissed off like an Italian New York horse family and yes. they wanted to get him and John Dowdy helped them in exchange for money or something? Yeah, and, I buy that 100%. And they probably were holding him in New York, sending messages to a shopkeeper that were like, don't let him go. He's like in the basement of some butcher shop or something. And then the cops like... Whatever, for whatever reason, they messed up their own plan. And eventually, after two years, they were just like, let him go. Yeah, or the cops came snooping around and they moved him. Yeah, totally. Damn. I do think it's even possible that they, like, made demands and sent ransom notes and that they just, like, no one believed them or saw them or whatever. Yeah. Because it seems like they just deemed everything a fake in this case. Yeah. (laughs) That's so interesting. The idea of a real ransom note getting lost. It's happened. In the fake ransom note. It reminds me of when D.B. Cooper gives Tina the the note. note. She's like, She pockets it. Yeah, because she doesn't want his number. (laughs) And he's like, you might want to read that note. But it's happened. I mean, like, stranger things have happened. But it's definitely happened. Ransom calls and letters that have gone unanswered that were real. Don't muddy the waters, folks. Well... That's the mystery. Thank you for listening. That was a great mystery. Thanks for listening. Thank you. We don't know. Stay in your lane. Fuckle the buck up. Horse smidges? Horse smidges. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye.